Please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Our text for the morning is 1 John 2, 3 through 14. And before we dive in to the text, um, some of you may have heard, some of you may not have heard that um, this past week, um, our beloved Arlene Douglas went to heaven, went to be with the Lord. Um, many of you know her and Carlton from even back their times at Canyon Prescott Valley before our church was even started. Uh, been part of this church for uh, almost nine years now, the length of our church, and Arlene always had such a bright smile when we would all enter um, on Sunday morning, just greeting you with that warmth that was in her heart. So we will miss her. Please pray for Carlton. Um, Lord willing, he'll be able to come join us a little bit more frequently now, um, but if you see him and you know him, please greet him, reach out to him. Uh, also this last week, on Wednesday at some point, Scott Oberlender uh, ended his earthly mission and went to um, be with God. So he passed away Wednesday. So a um, couple of homegoings in the life of our church this last week. Uh, I told Scott a few weeks ago when we last were together, I said, uh, you know, we miss seeing you on Sundays. I said, it's not the same without you on Sunday morning. He's such a warm man. Um, obviously, that warmth given to him by God who loved him. But uh, how many of you remember <laughs> coming in when Scott was on uh, safety team ministry and he'd be out front and he'd say, welcome to dad's house. <laughs> Any of you remember that? Yeah. Uh, we'll miss that. Um, I've literally asked the Lord this week that uh, when my time to go and be with him happens, that Scott would greet me with a welcome to dad's house. <laughs> um, so we'll miss, we'll miss that man. We'll miss Arlene. Um, but uh, be in prayer for them, their family members. And uh, what you saw in them, the faith that you saw in them, I'd encourage you to make the effort to, to continue living that out toward one another. And you see the warmth of Scott, the warmth of uh, Arlene Douglas. Uh, keep living that out, encouraging one another. I think they'd be honored by that. All right, 1 John 2, 3 to 14. We're going through this book, which I've entitled Assured Child of God. This is a book meaning to give troubled believers assurance of where they stand with God in light of the fact that there are people who've left their churches and are troubling them saying, we've got this knowledge that you need. And now these people who are staying in these churches are a little bit concerned that maybe they don't know God like these other people do. Maybe they're missing something. And John writes to assure them of where they stand with God. So 1 John 2, 3 to 14 is our passage for the morning. And by this we know that we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever, abide, whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, 
because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. I've entitled this message, Who Knows God? Who Doesn't? It seems to me that in our postmodern age where truth is whatever you say it is, truth is whatever you think it is, that when it comes to knowing God and having a right relationship with Him, a lot of times that's based in our culture, that's based on whatever the person says is true. If I say that I've got a right relationship with God, then guess what? I've got a right relationship with God, and you can't say otherwise. There are people that John's writing about in this book, there are people that we've called the departed that have said that they have a right relationship with God, that they know God, and John makes it clear they actually don't. Who is John to question them? Who is John? Who does John think he is that he can levy a, an evaluation of that? Well, as we saw in 1, 1 to 4, he's an apostle. So, well, an apostle was sent by God to declare truth from God. So, if John is saying who does know God and who doesn't know God, it's God saying who does know God and who doesn't know God. And we need to pay attention to that. So the question isn't what do I think about my own relationship with God, but what does God say about my relationship with Him? And that's true of anybody on the planet today. What does God say about your claim to know Him? Is it right or is it wrong? What does divine truth say about knowing God and who actually does know God and who doesn't know God? So that's one issue you'll see in our first point this morning. There are people who thought they knew God, said they knew God, but in reality, when you see God the Holy Spirit writing in this letter, they didn't know God. And there's a group of people who have been troubled by those people who aren't sure of where they stand with God and who are nervous about the fact that they're not sure if they stand rightly with God. They're nervous about this. And John writes to comfort them that you do know God. Both of these realities happen in this passage. There are people who say they know God, but don't. That'll be our first point. And there are people who question their relationship with God and who need to be reassured. That's our second point found in verses 12 to 14. Now, you might right now be saying to yourself, who in the world are you, preacher, to question someone's claim about knowing God? And that's a good question. I am nobody. I cannot question that. But I can tell you what God's Word says about the claims to know Him and whether that's true or not. And that's all I'm doing today. 
I'm just reiterating and teaching what God says about those claims to know him. This is not based on my authority, it's based on his. So, two types of people who have mistaken understandings of knowing God. Two types of people who have mistaken understandings of knowing God. The first, the people who say they know God, but don't. Verses 3 to 11. Now, verse 3 is the key here. It's kind of the overarching statement for the rest of the verses. He says this, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. There is an assumption that when you know God the Father, He actually does a miracle in your heart to where you actually start to become like Him. You become like His Son. You love to do His will. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly. We know John, the apostle, has made provision for the fact that Christians will sin, and they are to confess those sins before God, and He will cleanse them of all unrighteousness. We saw that last week. So this isn't saying that someone who knows God perfectly and always obeys His commands. But if you do know God, the pattern of your life is that you obey His commands. You desire to obey His commands. And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Jesus taught this Himself, and John would have been around when Jesus said things like, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Whoever says, verse 4, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So again, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is saying that there's a group of people who say they know God, and that's not just an intellectual knowledge, that is a relational knowledge. They know God, but they don't. This is God's evaluation. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So whoever keeps the word of God, the love of God, the love that God has for them is actually completed. I like the word completed a little bit better than perfected. We think of perfection always as kind of 10 out of 10, but this word right here is more completion of something that was intended. That's the idea here. So, let me read it again and express what this is saying. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, keeps God's word, in him truly the love of God is completed. And we're going to see that the chief way that John's thinking of keeping God's word is by loving Okay, so when he says keeping his word, he has this idea of obeying and loving the way God intends us to love. And you'll see that throughout the rest of the book. So when he talks about keeping his word in this letter, 1 John, he's talking about keeping his word by loving other people, by loving one another, the household of faith. That's what he's thinking. So this right here is saying there are people who say they know him, and this is the departed people that have left, but they don't keep His commandments, and therefore they're liars, and the truth is not in them. See, the, the departed were entering into what we now know as a heresy called Gnosticism. They had this secret, deep knowledge that this current church that they had left don't possess. 
And so they're, they've got this knowledge. They prize knowledge with God, a relationship with God based on what they know. And John's saying, listen, they don't know Him. It's not a knowledge thing. They don't know Him. It's a, it's a heart thing because they don't love one another. They don't love like He loves. So you can call them to question they're knowing Him because you don't see love in their life. You don't see an obedience to keeping His commandments about love in their life. But the, whoever, whoever does keep His word, whoever you can see love in, whoever does keep His word, in Him truly the love of God is completed. So get the picture here, okay? God, I'm just going to put Him up here as if He's in heaven, okay? God loves His children, loves His children, and, and we receive that love from Him. The assumption of John in this book is that when this love comes to, comes to us, it doesn't stay with us as if we're some sort of cul-de-sac. Okay, God has loved me. He's loved me in Jesus Christ. He's forgiven my sins. The love stays here. No, no, no. The love of God is actually completed. Its intention is to come to us and then go out to one another. That's the completion of love. And so he's saying, if there's not that completion of love, this person doesn't know God. The ones who do know God, they are loved by God and they keep His commandments to love one another. That's the completion of God's intended love. It goes through us, sweetly to us in the gospel, and then through us to one another where we are forgiving and forbearing and we serve one another and meet one another's needs. That's God saying, that's the intent of my love. They would not just come to you and stop, but they would go out from you as you care for your brothers and sisters. So again, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is completed. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If your pattern of life is a desire and a commitment to walk as Jesus walked, you got that from somewhere. The transforming love of God did that to your heart. And so now when you serve, when you seek to help, when you are patient with others, all of those things are because God has shown love to you and now it's being completed in you toward other people. You're walking like Jesus Christ. To walk in love is to walk as Jesus walked. He was the embodiment of love when He came. We got to see what love looked like in the flesh. We got to see him be patient with his disciples. We got to see him love his enemies. We got to see all of that. And the one who currently today, in 2023, walks like that, intends to walk like that because they know that they've received love from the Father, that's the one who is right with God. That's the one who knows him. But the ones who say they know him and don't care to love others, hold grudges as a pattern of life, you can question that claim to know God because God's questioning here, questioning it here in 1 John 2. Verse 7, beloved, he's writing to the church that remains here, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. He's reminding them of the, the commands that they've been taught, the Old Testament law, He's reminding them of the Ten Commandments and all the commandments that come from that are fleshed out. 
The Ten Commandments are commandments about love, loving God, loving others. When you obey the Ten Commandments, you are obeying and you are loving God and loving other people. So in that sense, he's saying, this is no new commandment I'm writing to you. The commands of God are to love. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 22, Jesus actually sums up the commandments. Remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum of the law. That's the summary. So that's why John can say, I'm not writing you anything new. The commands that God has given His people have always been about loving Him and loving others. There's nothing new about that. And then in verse 8, at the same time, it is new. Okay, John, what are you doing here? It's not new, but it is new. It's not new in the sense he's, His commands have always been about love to God and love to others. At the same time, verse 8, it is a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in Him. This is saying that here's the newness of it. It's not new in the sense that God's, God's never told us to love one another. Oh, that's new. No, 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 no. That, that's actually old. He has taught us to love one another. Leviticus 19. He has taught us to love Him. That's not new. The new part is that now we've seen Him in the flesh, John would say. I have dined with and I know God in human flesh and I saw how He loved God and how He loved others. And so now we're to walk in Him. That's the new part. Now that we see it and love like He loved. That's the new part of it. At the same time, it's, not, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him. You see this in Jesus. In the upper room, John 13, 34, Jesus said, Love one another just as I have loved you. That's the new sense of it. Now we're loving one another, not in some kind of unknown way, but we're loving one another like Christ, when He was on earth, loved other people, loved His own, loved His Father. We're loving like He loved. That's the new sense of it. And notice this. Don't miss this. Again, second part of verse, uh, verse 8. Which is true in Him, this love you're seeing is true in Him, and in you. There is an assumption that the Christian community would demonstrate the love of Jesus to one another. It's true in Him. Jesus is the epitome of love. Look at how He loved. And it's true in you. Look at how you love. That's how Jesus loves. That's how God loves. So He's telling this remaining crowd, listen, don't listen to them. Look at the way you love one another. What was true in Him is true in you. Take heart. I'm writing to you which is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So when Jesus came to earth, He came, and we're seeing this as you study the Gospel of John in your small groups, Jesus came as a light to the world, the light that dispelled darkness. Think about it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, we sing at Christmas time. Okay, there's darkness in the world because of sin. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, there was light given to the world. 
We got to see what love looks like. We got to see what suffering righteously looks like. We got to see what care for those who are diseased looks like. We got to see what love from heaven to sinners looks like. We saw that in Jesus, and it was a light. Oh my goodness, this is what we've been missing. This is what God is like. This is light. John assumes, Jesus assumes, that now that Jesus has died, risen, and ascended to heaven, guess what? The light didn't just go to heaven. Oh, we're in darkness again. No, no, no. You're here. I'm here. We have the light of Jesus to demonstrate what it looks like to love enemies, to be patient with one another, to care for people who are diseased, to bring the message of forgiveness of sin. The light hasn't gone away, friends. The light is in the church. It's supposed to be in the church. It's in His children. That's why John says, this is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We are a people meant to show light to the world, meant to show light to the Quad Cities, meant to show light to the people that we interact with. I think a good applicational thought from this is, Father, thank you for the reminder that I am to be light like your son. You've put light inside of me. Now, whatever room I walk into, whatever relationship I walk into, whatever situation I walk into, I want to shine the light of your love into that situation. That's what's intended here. That's the love of God completed. That's what He intended to happen. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Notice what this is saying here. The one who doesn't care about his brother and sister claims to know God but doesn't actually demonstrate love as a pattern of life which means that God has not done that miracle in their heart. The one who does that is walking in the darkness. And what happens when you walk in the darkness? You trip. You stumble. It's inevitable. Just give it some time. And so he's saying that the one who doesn't love ends up stumbling. The one who does not care for others the way God has intended them to care for them they end up stumbling. They don't thrive because of that. People who lack love do not thrive. They end up stumbling. When we love others, said another way, when we love others, we actually avoid sinning. When we love others, we avoid becoming malicious toward them. When we love others, we avoid being angry and flying off the handle at them. And that ends up keeping us from stumbling. So, the idea that here is that a lack of love leads to stumbling. We, as we love, we're walking in the light, and that keeps us in so many circumstances from stumbling. So, get what he's doing in verses 3 to 11. He's saying that there are people who say they know God but they don't. And you can tell that by a lack of love. That is not the pattern of their life. And he says, he even encourages the believers here in these verses also, but saying, you're in the light. 
you're differently. You're different. What's true in him, what was true in Jesus, is true in you. You're light. But there's this first group of people who are mistaken in their understanding of knowing God. They say they know him, but they don't. I want to read this to you from another place. This is Jesus saying this in the flesh when he was here. You know these verses. Many of you know them. Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. And surprise, surprise, the Sermon on the Mount, as you look through it and you see what God calls us to in obedience, it ends up being loving God and loving other people. In fact, what we know as the golden rule is part of this Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus teaches this golden rule. Whatever you wish others would do to you, you do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Love. No kidding. This is Jesus teaching that. And then he says, beware of the false prophets, those that don't love. And then he says this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, it's not based, you being right with God is not based on what you say. It's based on his determination. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? By the way, you can do all of those things without love. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That seems to be what John's picking up here in 1 John. There's not a life of love. God doesn't know you and you don't know him. And then Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, lawless people are lawless because of ultimately a lack of love, a lack of love for God and a lack of love for others. You see that fleshed out. So it doesn't matter what they claim to know God, God is saying they don't know him. I want you to imagine you're introduced to the most benevolent man in the world, exudes kindness, demonstrates love everywhere, constantly selfless, giving, and not doing it when there's just a TV camera in his face. Oh, look at me feed the orphans. No, no, no. Just his heart is to give, sacrifices himself for the good of others. You've been invited to spend some time with him at his house. This most benevolent man has invited you to know him, You're invited to his home. You see the love he has even for his children, and his children are not perfect. But you constantly see his love for them. You hear of his love for him as he tells them. You see it in how he provides and cares for them, addresses their concerns, near them when they're hurting. He's available to them. He sacrifices for them. You see the love he has for his children. His patience never wanes. His children are never moved even a centimeter from his heart, even when they wrong him. He still is committed to them and loves them. He exudes goodness. And he's told you that he would adopt you into his family as well. You notice something about his children. They are actually characteristically and most often a kind group of people. 
they care about one another. The love that their father has for them seems to be lived out in how they love one another. You see him and you see them and you're like, not only do they look like him, they, they, they do things like him. You're seeing this. You're seeing this benevolent, good love just permeate this house. And it's not just him to them, it's them to them. You're just witnessing this. When they wrong each other, they seem to be quick at going to ask for forgiveness. It's a big deal to them to have a fracture in the relationship, and so they work at it. They humble themselves, and they sit out on the back porch, and they talk over coffee, and they cry, and they, they, they talk very freely, and at the end, they embrace. You see that as the characteristic in this home over the months that you're there. They work at making it right. Who their father is seems to be always on their minds as they interact with one another. After some time around this family, you start to become annoyed with some of these children of his. After all, they're imperfect, and their imperfection rubs you the wrong way. When slighted, your pattern is to hold a grudge. They seem to try to reconcile differences quickly. You say, yeah, but they really offended me, and so... I'm not ready to do that yet. And months go by, and you're still not ready to do that yet. Your pattern is actually to hold grudges. You grow bitter toward them. As soon as you see them in the morning, you start to think of all their faults. And that's just what every day starts to look like for you. You're not patient. You're not kind with them as a pattern. You're jealous of some of them. You're normally rude to them. You manipulate some of them to get your own way. When there's a decision to be made, you will fight for your way. You'll actually organize others around you to help get your own way. You're quickly irritated by many of these children. Your own aura, what, what emanates from you, is resentment toward them. They're just in your way. You're frustrated with her and him, and maybe they actually did do things wrong to you. You actually like it when some of them suffer for their own faults. It gives you kind of a silent yes. It's what they deserve. You regularly believe the worst about them. Instead of believing the best and thinking, you know, there's probably more to that. There's probably a reason they said that. I want to give them understanding. You actually start thinking the worst of them. And you actually, in your mind, you make them worse than they actually are. Rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt. The pattern is that your love normally fails. His children's knowledge of him has actually made them more and more like him. But you've been around for a while and you actually become less and less like this man. So, it does not matter what you say. You don't know him. To know him is to actually transform you. A lot of times on Sunday mornings, I will 
earnestly make a gospel appeal to people who aren't Christians and to say, I hope that you're seeing based on the songs we sing and the testimony of the gospel that Jesus came to die for sinners and he rose again for their justification. Believe in Jesus. He is the only savior for the world. Today in my notes, I wrote this. Lord, save someone who's been here a long time. There may be some of you that have in your heart as a pattern of life just a lack of love. And you justify it because others around you are wrong, because this world is bad, so it's okay for you to hate your enemies. And you justify it. You make excuses for it. And First John, Lord willing, will interrupt your thinking and say, confess all of that darkness to the Lord. Be forgiven by Him and walk in love. Or maybe it stops you in your tracks and you say, you know what? I haven't ever been changed by God from the inside out. And I would invite you, someone I may have known for the last nine years, to not just repent of your sin, but to ask God to change you and to make you like His Son, who is the embodiment of love. Please don't be deceived. If you say you know Him and walk in the darkness, the truth is not in you. And the good news is, while there might be conviction in you right now, there is forgiveness available to you now in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to save not just the sinners out there on the news. He also came to save the self-righteous. He is a complete Savior. Do you know God? Do you look like Him? Do you look like His Son? For those of you who are Christians, again, hopefully that illustration of God giving His love to you and not ending with you was helpful to you this morning. That's God's intent. His intent is that His love would go to you and then through you to others. How can you meet needs? How can you speak the right words? How can you serve your brothers and sisters? Be patient with your brothers and sisters. Maybe forgive your brothers and sisters. How can you keep completing the intended love of God? Please consider that. So, so again, there's a first type of person that says they know God, but actually doesn't. Now, there's a second type of person that this text addresses. It's a type of person who questions their relationship with God and needs to be reassured. These verses are so comforting for the believer. Verses 12 to 14. In some ways, this is kind of the heart of the book. It comes here at the end of chapter 2. Should I say the middle of chapter 2? The heart of the book. In 5.13, it says that he's writing these things so that we would know be assured that we have eternal life. Writing these things to us who believe in the name of the Son of God, that we may know that we have eternal life. And here is him in chapter 2, 12 to 14, trying to convince people that are kind of unsure because these people are saying something different. They seem to have this deeper knowledge, and they're telling me that I'm not in the right. And John's saying, no, no, look at their lack of love. Now look at your love. You be assured of where you stand. Don't question this. And then he says these words, I am writing to you, little children, because 
your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Now, does that sound iffy to you? No. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you, little children, because, eh, your sins might be forgiven. This is definite. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He doesn't say, oh, let's see if you overcome. He doesn't do that. That's not this language. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. I told you before, you can't read the book of 1 John rightly without understanding this departed group that is troubling these saints that he's writing to. Look at it again. In our passage here, he writes about them, the departed, those earlier 3 to 11, and now he writes to the remaining church, and he's saying, you are right before him. You know him. You're his children. He does that throughout the book. I want you to see this again in Chapter 2, look at verse 18 later on. Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They, the departed, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And then now notice this, the people he's writing to. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge Again, he doesn't say they left and we'll see where you stand. No, no, they left. You know him. You've been anointed. You've been forgiven. This is a regular pattern in this letter. I hope this brings some of you comfort, these verses. And again, he knows that you will still sin. Look at last week's passage. He makes provision of that as you confess it and His Son cleanses you and forgives you. So this isn't written to sinless people, verses 12 to 14. It's not just sinless people that get the comfort of 12 to 14. Okay, well, you shouldn't receive comfort from this, but the 99% of us in this room that are sinless, this comforts us. No. All of us fail the Lord and are broken over it if we're truly in Christ. We hate it. We confess that to Him, and He forgives us. And now He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Little children, this is Him writing to the whole church. This is how He talks about the church throughout the letter. Not just in this letter. In Second John, He does this as well. Children, this is the church. What does He want even just the newest members of the church, the newest Christians to know? Your sins are forgiven. Know that your sins are forgiven. I need you fathers, older people. I don't think this is reserved just for the males in the church. I think this is just those older in the faith, and he's just referring to them in masculine terms. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. And I think this is a little jab at the departed because he calls Jesus the one who is from the beginning. He knows that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, has always existed with the Father. And there were these heresies starting to foment out there that said that Jesus was a created being. 
God the Son came into existence at one point. He wasn't always God. And so, this is kind of a jab at them while he's also trying to encourage the fathers. You know Christ rightly. You know who He actually is. You know Him, fathers. I remind you, young men, the next generation of Christians coming up, not the older in the faith yet, but the, but the young men and women, the, the people who are strong and ready to go, and they're in this battle against Satan. Remember, the, the, the elders and the older people, they're about to be in glory, and they should know that they know Him who's from the beginning. He's eternal. His love for them will be eternal. Now, the young people, the young men, the young women, you've overcome the evil, and you're in this battle. You're raising children. You're working. You're serving the church. You're doing all of this. You've overcome the evil one. That's good for us to know. We're not controlled by Satan. We've been freed by that. And in our battle against him, in our desire to do good and do right and to live rightly, to be a good testimony, we've overcome the evil one. It's a good thing to remember for us. And then he writes to these three groups again. You know why? Because they needed the reminder. And so do we. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who's from the beginning. I think of people who have been in the faith for a long time now. For me, it's been about 25 years. Some of you, it's over 50 years. I think there is something to knowing God longer and longer and longer that makes the communion with Him sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. I know it sounds like an old guy talking, but I see that. The prayer time is sweeter, maybe because we know Him more as days go by. We are learning more and more things about Him, being reminded of things. The prayer time is sweeter. The singing is sweeter. The security we have, the character that we see coming from him, who he is, it's just all the more sweet. And I see John writing to fathers, and this makes a lot of sense, older people in the faith. I write to you because you know him who's from the beginning. There's this focus on the intimacy of the relationship that is good for an older person to hear, good for someone who's been in the faith for a long time. You know him. He's yours. He will always be yours. Whether you close your eyes like Arlene and Scott have closed their eyes this last week or whether they're open, you will always know him, always be with him. Who's from the beginning. It's a sweet thing for John to say to the mature in the faith. And then he says to the young men again, the young people, I write to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Those two things are connected, by the way. The more the Word of God is abiding, the more spiritual strength is there. Blessed is the man who meditates, Psalm chapter 1. The one who has the Word of God in them, thinking the Word, praying the Word, talking about the Word, studying the Word, abiding in the Word, the message of God. Those are the strong ones. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. You're on the winning side now that you're in Christ. Again, I, I just sum up these three verses and 
want you to see the comfort that they would be to a troubled church where people have departed and saying, you guys are in the wrong, we know stuff. Look at how many of them left. There's only, there's a smaller number of us now. Are we really in the right here? Your sins are forgiven. You know Him. You're strong. You overcome the evil one. Listen to the comfort that John gives to the church. Listen to the comfort that God gives to you, person who believes in the name of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ. These verses have shown us that there are people who are uncertain of where they stand with God, who are encouraged that they know Him, their sins are forgiven, they've overcome the evil one. Don't listen to people who tell you otherwise. Listen to God who tells you what His children are like who tells you his love for his children. Listen to him. So, what's the application here from verses 12 to 14? One word. No. No. God is writing so that you would know and be assured that you are right with him. You believe the gospel, you've been changed? Rest. Rest assured. You know him. You've been forgiven. You're strong. I think of people who may sometimes be troubled about where they stand with God. They believe the gospel. They've been changed. They just still sin too much, and they don't like it. I, I liken it to maybe a troubled teen who has done wrong, and they know it. They love their mom. They love their dad. They know they've done wrong, and they're so ashamed of what they've done. And maybe even some of their friends say, they are not going to treat you the same way they've always treated you. This is, this is, is going to cause a problem with you and your parents. This is not going to go well. I've seen, people, I've seen parents disown their kids for this type of thing. This will not go well. And the troubled teen comes to the parents and kind of assumes that there's going to be a distance for a while, maybe even forever because of what they've done. There's certainly no way I can be brought back home with the same love and celebration that I've always had. There's just no way. 12 to 14 remind me of a father or mother taking this teen, grabbing their cheeks, looking at them straight in the eye and saying, listen to me. I forgive you. You will never Outsin my love for you. I love you. You will always be mine. I treasure you. I want you to rest in that. I see that when I think of what John's doing in 12 to 14. This letter is meant to give your heart rest. I hope that it will continue to do that as we go through it. Let's pray.